0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture this evening comes from James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. Good evening, City Church. Uh, It's been a while since we were all gathered together at night for city worship. Uh, My name's Ted Sin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm glad that you found us uh, tonight. I heard there were a few folks that showed up at 10 o'clock this morning at Sinesta. Uh, They were given a little flyer indicating that we'd be here tonight, I hope. Um, that you made it. If not, maybe they'll find us uh, next week back at the Sinesta, um at 10 o'clock. Uh, a little update on me. Um, uh, last week, I thought I was around 50% um, in return from uh, the trip around the world that Rue took me on. But as it turned out, I was closer to 20%. And I only know that now because I've gotten about 60% of myself back and I'm not there uh, yet. I was so tired uh, one day driving my family on I-4, I had to pull over and ask Trisha to drive because I was so exhausted. And just sitting in that chair um, just about put me to sleep. And Trisha said within five seconds I was snoring in the passenger seat. Um, I'm such a poor shepherd and city group leader that on Tuesday night, we were sitting there talking about the trials sermon, and I knew that I was done. You know, you get that feeling when you sit in a big leather chair that at any moment you're going to just be gone. And so I warned them multiple times, I am about to fall asleep. And I looked to Trisha for mercy. I was like, please take over. Please, like, pray. Do something. Uh, get me out of here. And uh, no, enough, she didn't pick up on the signals. And... Uh, One of my friends was talking about a trial they're going through, just pouring out their soul to the group, and my head just nodded off. I mean, I about broke my neck. Uh, My head snapped over uh, to the side. Um, I was, uh, as you know, I'm out of glasses because I left them in Taiwan. And so on Thursday, I finally got to LensCrafters, who supposedly will get you a pair in an hour. And so I finished the whole process. I give them my credit card. I pay the bill. And they're like, okay, it's going to take two to ten days. We'll let you know. And I was like, "That's not good enough, but uh, they were not okay with me pressuring them. so I was like, "All right, we'll call me when they're in." And then uh, Friday morning, I wake up to get an email from Gordon, my friend in Taiwan, who said, "I've shipped your glasses to you. I found them." So I thought that was uh, perfect. I now have two pair. Um, so I'll always leave one here when I travel and, and take one with me. So even uh, in this sort of different space and in this different time. Um, We, the body of City Church, we are gathered together, and we're going to just continue on in our series uh, through the book of James. As you know by now, we're going thread by thread or or theme by theme. And what I mean by that is this, that there are a handful of major themes in the book of James. And and sort of in this series, we're going to take each theme and follow it through the book from front uh, to back so james does not say everything he has to say about each topic so there are these topics trials rich and poor faith and works the sins of the tongue spiritual warfare these are there are these threads that wind their way through the book of james and instead of james saying everything he has to say about a topic in one place chapter 1 for trials let's say he decides to weave the various themes together so like our study in the book of proverbs i'm taking each theme and i'm working our way through it so this is our fourth and I believe our final sermon on trials. So for example, we studied chapter one, one through four. Then we studied chapter one, five through seven, or eight, excuse me. Uh, We skipped nine through 11 and picked up like 12 through 16. We skipped nine through 11 because that's the beginning of the next major thread, which is the rich and the poor. And of course, it's related to trials. We'll see that in fact tonight, but it's a different thread. And so then tonight we're in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and that's, that's because this trials thread it disappeared for a while, and now James is bringing it back up sort of in his concluding remarks for the book, and he's giving us his final take on how to live faithfully in the midst of trials. So trials uh, part 4. Uh, We've said over and over that trials are are any loss, any pain, any suffering, any affliction, any hardship in our lives that is brought into our world by the sins of other people or by virtue of the fact that we live in a broken, cursed, fallen world. So the various and sundry trials that we meet uh, in this life are first brought into our world by the sins of others. When others use us, when others put themselves ahead of us, when others consider their agenda more important than us, when others think their pleasures are more significant than us. People lie to us. People slander us. People physically and emotionally abuse us. People betray us. People are just plain forgetful of us as human beings. Trials come into our lives through the sins of of others, but also trials or pain or loss, hardships, they, they come into our world because we lived in a cursed world that's riddled with disease and death and destruction and violence. So, any pain that comes into my existence because of sunburn or allergies or strep throat or hurricanes or tsunamis or tornadoes. And James has taught us in this thread that, that we will meet these trials inevitably, that trial after trial. Over and over in our lives. And, and, and James' teaching falls in line with the rest of Scripture when he calls for us to embrace the trials that we meet, to see trials as an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to mature, an opportunity to know God better, an opportunity to become, ironically, more human. Every trial we face in life will either make us more human or more inhuman. Every hardship will either crush us or elevate us. Uh, Every pain that comes into our lives by the sin of others or by living in a broken world, each one will either harden our hearts and embitter us, or the same trial can soften our hearts and make us sweet to the experience of those around us. Now, I'm about to add a layer here, so listen closely. I'm kind of going to tell you where the next move is in the thread in this text by James. And I'm about to introduce what is the majority of tonight's topic. Okay, so, so listen. When you look at the entire trial thread that runs through the book, James teaches us to embrace the, the two different types of trials. He teaches us to embrace them in two unique Ways. There are two ways to embrace these two types of trials. They certainly go together at time and they're not at odds with one another, but they're unique ways to understand the trials brought to us. In order to grow through the trials that come into our lives by difficult circumstances, our hearts have to increase in steadfastness. We saw it over and over in chapter one. James brings it up again in verse eleven of chapter five. But new tonight, in order to grow through the trials that are brought to us by difficult or sinful people, our hearts have to increase in patience. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 10. If you look down at verses 10 and 11, James says that the prophets are an example of suffering and patience. So, of course, the, prof, the prophets, they, they encountered difficult circumstances in their lives. But by and large, the scriptures are constantly speaking of the prophets as those who were sinned against, those who were persecuted, those who were treated horribly by sinful people. James says the prophets are a picture of patience. And then James says, look at Job. Job is an example of steadfastness. Now, of course, Job... Uh, the Old Testament figure whose life is told in the book of Job, Job was sinned against by people, namely Satan, his wife, his friends, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the list could go on and on. But, but by and large, Scripture presents Job as the quintessential uh, a picture of suffering horrible circumstances. And so for that reason, James is saying that Job is the picture of steadfastness. You see the two. Trials come by hard circumstances, steadfastness. Trials come from sinful people, patience. So it's a distinction that we're gonna kind of unpack through our points tonight. In a minute, I'm gonna give you two points on how to be patient, or are talking about patience with people. But before we do that, look down at verse 11. Look with me, and let's just consider again James is teaching on steadfastness. Now, this is about when we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, okay? So behold, or look, he's getting our attention. We consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So so blessed is not necessarily a term about our emotional state, like being happy. Blessed is an objective term describing our state before God. So, So James is saying we consider fortunate we consider having the favor of God. We consider as one under the smile of God, those who remain steadfast in trial. So is it a blessing to encounter trial or is it a blessing to remain steadfast in a trial? The biblical answer is yes. Now, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And my guess is, even for those of us here tonight who didn't grow up in the church, we've heard of this character named Job. Think about the circumstantial difficulties brought into his life by Satan, all of which came within the sovereign control of God. Job was an incredibly wealthy man. Seven daughters, I'm sorry, seven sons, three daughters. Listen to his property. 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, which is 1,000 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and then too many servants or or too many employees to count. Chapter 1 of Job says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. And through one event or one circumstance after another, God allowed Satan to take everything from him except this, his nagging wife and some self-righteous, foolish friends. And whether it was the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the fire of God that fell from heaven or the east, the wind from, uh, 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 from the west, excuse me, whatever the circumstance was, Job lost all of his possessions and he lost all of his children. And James says that in those circumstances, Job remained steadfast. Now, this should actually, I think, comfort us and encourage us because if you've ever read through the book of Job, you're going to see that he was by no means perfect, Job was self-righteous at times. He was very demanding at times. He complained bitterly at times. And yet through it all, when, when you think big picture, when you think long-term trajectory, he never abandoned his faith. He questioned God. He, he at times seemed to defy God. But he was never willing to let go of God. And so this should encourage us as we struggle through trials. James can say in summary fashion, he remained Steadfast. Keep reading. And you have seen the purpose. You've seen the end, the goal, the fulfillment of the Lord. How Jesus is compassionate and merciful. And James is echoing here something that he said in chapter 1. He says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of, of various kinds. And the reason we can count it joy, not experience joy, but we count it joy because we know the character of God. And we know the benefit that will eventually come to us through trials by the faith that God provides when we remain steadfast in them, even when absolutely nothing makes sense. If you read Job, again, you'll get to the last chapter, chapter 42. And chapter 42 delineates the purposes of God. It uses the word purposes. Job says, your purposes cannot be thwarted. It delineates what God accomplished in Job's life, through the trial, his, his purposes, his ends, his goals were not thwarted. And James is saying to us, these same things can happen in our lives as a result of trials through steadfastness. First, the trial brought Job to repentance, which is a good thing. Job, at the end of the book, he confesses his arrogance. He confesses his presumption. He confesses his folly. All of it brought about not through wealth, but through trial. Second, the the trial brought Job closer to God. His relationship went from hearsay about God to a vivid firsthand experience of God. He said, chapter 42, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... In the trial, God has not restored his fortunes. He says, now my eyes actually see you. I had heard about you, but because of trial, I see you. Third, the trial revealed to Job who his real friends were and who he could trust. It's always incredibly important moving forward. Fourth, and finally, God restored all of Job's fortunes that were taken from him in the trial. God gave him seven sons and three daughters. God doubled what he had before in terms of animals and employees. And so at this point, of course, we have to be very careful. The Old Testament and the New Testament gives multiple examples of folks who go through trials and they don't receive back double what God took from them. But what the scriptures do say is this. Everything that we proactively give and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus' kingdom and everything we lose in a trial that advances Jesus' kingdom will be given back to us a hundredfold in God's timing. The scriptures seem to be clear for most of us that a hundredfold restoration is in the new heavens and the new earth, that place where we can have untold fortunes and not worship them more than Jesus' that place where we can enjoy incredible material blessings and not think they are more important than the one who gives them to us. And so in these trials that were brought about by disastrous circumstances, okay, so think about our lives from, from cancer in our bodies to, to cancer claiming the body of a loved one. Um, From a tree falling on your house to a child falling out of a tree. Um, From mold that brings corrosion to your house and corruption to your lungs. In all of these, James says, remain steadfast. Know the character of God. He is compassionate and he is merciful. His good and loving purposes will be accomplished. And so trials come into our life by difficult circumstances and James' call is for steadfastness. Let's turn the corner and let's talk the rest of our time about patience. What it is that James is calling forth from our hearts with difficult people. Just look down at the text. It's incredibly redundant. 7A, be patient. 7B, the farmer waits for the fruit, being patient. 8, you also be patient. Uh, verse 10 the prophets are the example or the picture or the pattern of suffering and patience so two thoughts on patience first the posture of patience and second the power for patience first the posture of patience and then second the power for patience okay in summary talking about the posture of patience called forth by job he or excuse me james uh, james is going to teach us that regardless of where the offense comes from and regardless of the size of the offense, the call for the believer is the call to patience. The word patience is probably best translated as it is translated in the older translations where they use a word that's not part of our nomenclature. They, they translate this word long-suffering. This is a Greek compound word with two words put together. You guessed it, long and suffering. And James says when we are sinned against by others, when others' sin brings trial into our lives, our posture towards them and to what is happening in our lives is long Suffering, slow to anger, slow to revenge, absorbing evil, turning the other cheek, going the additional mile, grace, mercy, forgiveness, love. If you look down at your text, so go, go ahead. I'm going to kind of rifle through a few things. You're going you're to see that James makes references to sins against believers from outside the family of faith and from inside the family of faith. He's going to mention offenses that are rather massive and some that are really minor and only slights against us. So let's look at these. Look at verse 7. He says, "'Be patient, be long-suffering, therefore, brothers and sisters.'" If you look at verses one through six, you'll know why he put the word therefore in the text. This is the context that he's calling for patience or long suffering in. He's saying, in verses one through six, I told you about this. And in verse seven, I'm asking believers, therefore, in this context, to be patient. So if you read one through six, which is part of the rich and the poor thread that we're going to pick up later, you read in verses one through six of non-Christian, wealthy business owners oppressing the scattered, dispersed people of God. This is the context. Non-Christian, wealthy business owners are becoming filthy rich through fraud and extortion. They're living in luxury and self-indulgence, and they're not paying a fair wage to their workers They condemn their workers and they say that the worker deserves the treatment they're getting. James says that the poor are literally going to the slaughter through poverty and the non-Christian business owners are growing fatter and fatter. And James says in verse 7, Be long-suffering, therefore, or in this context, brothers and sisters, where you've been defrauded, where you've been oppressed, where you've been cheated, where you've been murdered. Be patient. Be long-suffering. But, but look down. Look down to verse 9. Look at this. There's an offense that we're going to assume is rather small, and we're going to assume that the context, we know the context, is the community of faith. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and And sisters. So now James is talking about offenses that happen inside the community of faith. He says, uh, brothers and sisters, which is his customary address for believers. And and he says, one another, which is a phrase that's used over and over in the New Testament to describe the interdependent life that we live together. And instead of saying for a fifth time uh, something positive, like be long suffering, he says negatively, don't grumble, don't sigh. Don't groan, don't complain, don't hold a grudge, don't nitpick, don't gripe. I mean, when do we do this? When do we groan instead of scream bloody murder? We groan and we pick and we gripe and we complain when something minor is done to us. When we perceive that a minor offense has happened to us, maybe something we can't really prove in the court of law. So instead of speaking out about it and speaking up about it, we we grumble, we murmur, we gripe, especially within the context of our family or the community of faith. James is saying in trials, when pain is caused in our lives, by the sin of others, regardless of the origin, regardless of the magnitude of the offense, whether a minor slight or a massive oppression, he calls for patience, long suffering, slow to anger, no grumbling, no revenge. Now, again, think back to verse 10. He says, The prophets are an example of suffering and patience when they spoke. In the name of the Lord. And we, we could be here all night. There's multiple of you in here that know more about the prophets than I do. And we could recount episode after episode after episode in the lives of the prophets. It's hard to know exactly which prophet James has in mind here. But he's talking about massive offenses that come from within the community of faith. Maybe he's thinking about Isaiah. God told Isaiah from the very beginning of his ministry that he would preach the gospel for two to three decades. And he tells him from the very beginning, no one is ever going to repent and believe. And in fact, you read in Isaiah that his audience, not only did they not receive him and his message, they scorned him, they mistreated him, they persecuted him. Eventually, they cut him in half. And in that affliction, in that suffering coming from the body of faith, James says, be patient. Maybe James has Jeremiah in mind. Jeremiah was told to prophesy to the Israelites that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, were an instrument in his hand to chasten them, and that they should just give in and surrender and be deported. And of course, the Israelites said, You're nuts, we're gonna fight against them. And what do we know happened? Nebuchadnezzar crushed the Israelites. Took them off in captivity. And in captivity, Jeremiah prophesies, you need to be a blessing to this place. You need to pray for this place. You need to seek God's peace for this place. You need to love your enemy. The men from Jeremiah's own hometown try to chase him down and kill him because he's preaching what is in their minds treason. James says, in that context, be long-suffering. Maybe he's thinking about Hosea. You you remember Hosea, right? He tells Hosea, God tells Hosea, in order for you to understand my experience and what it's like being God to Israel, what it's like being the husband of the church, he tells Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. I want you to marry a prostitute. And I want you to know that she's gonna continually and repeatedly run from you, cheat on you, not appreciate you. And God tells Hosea, I want you to continually go after her, continually bring her back, continually forgive her, continually provide for her, continually cover her. And in that, and I would call that suffering and hardship, James says, be patient. Be long-suffering. Regardless of the origin, regardless of the magnitude of the offense, the call in James is patience, patience. Now, my guess is that almost every one of our hearts and every one of our minds is screaming bloody murder right now, especially if we are going through trials that are being brought into us and upon us by the sins of others. If your heart and your mind is not right now saying, that's ridiculous, You can't possibly mean that. Are you absolutely crazy? If there's not someone here saying that or feeling that, it's either because you're not listening to what I just said, or or, or it's because maybe your mind and heart has already raced forward to our last point. Either you're asleep at this night version of city worship, or you realize and have begun to consider and have started to chew on the reality And maybe your heart is beginning to be warmed by the truth of the gospel. That the story of Hosea and Gomer is not really about Hosea and Gomer. Nor is it ultimately about God and Israel. But it's about Jesus and his church. It's about Jesus and you. It is about Jesus and me. This call to patience, this call to long-suffering, it is insane and it is impossible Unless the gospel is absolutely true. Only if we realize, and to the extent that we realize, that we are the unfaithful wife who has continually and repeatedly run away from, committed adultery on, has not appreciated her husband. And of course, I'm speaking here in the ultimate spiritual sense. Only when we realize that Jesus repeatedly and continually chased after us, pursued us, brings us home, feeds us, protects us, forgives us, loves us over and over, time and time again, only then will we see this repeated call to patience as something that's actually quite logical, quite rational, and even possible. So that's the posture of patience. Let's look finally at the power for patience. Let's go back to the text Let's study what James offers as the power for patience. There's two incredibly redundant ideas given over and over in our text. You don't have to be a well-trained Bible scholar to pick up what they are. The first is the repeated call for patience. But the second idea that's repeated over and over is the imminent return of Jesus, the imminent arrival of our Savior in glory. Over and over in the text, James is gonna call us to this patience that's so far beyond us. He is, after every one of them, gonna remind us or follow that up with an understanding of the coming of the Lord, of the return of Jesus when we will see him face to face. This is the power for patience. Let's look at it, verse seven. Be patient, look what he says at the end, until the coming uh, the Perusia, the, the arrival, the presence of the Lord. He doesn't say, "Be patient through this particular trial." He says, "Be patient." for your entire life until the Lord comes back. And he's talking about Jesus's second coming. He's talking about that time when Jesus will come and he'll consummate his kingdom. Jesus will come and he will usher in a reality for you and I that are his brothers and sisters. And in this reality, there'll be no trials, there'll be no pain, there'll be no loss. There will only be eternal flourishing in the new heaven and the new earth. And all of this is given to us by mercy and grace and forgiveness because of his long suffering, because he is slow to anger, because he does not revenge and avenge himself against us, but he loves us. Verse eight, be patient, establish your hearts for, since, because the coming, the parousia of the Lord is at hand, it's near, it's close James joins the other New Testament writers and and they believe what Jesus himself taught. Jesus said, no one knows when I'm going to come back. But, But Jesus also said it can happen at any time. And we therefore are encouraged by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, by James to be ready, to watch, to wait, to keep our eyes on the horizon, to hope and to pray for it. One out of every 13 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming of Jesus. That means one out of every 13 seconds, one out of every 13 minutes, one out of every 13 hours is to be given to the contemplation of watching and waiting and hoping and seeing that Jesus is going to come back. And what difference does that glorious return of my gracious Savior have to do with here and now? It has everything to do with here and now. And so Jesus, his return, it is the next major event of history and it can happen at any moment. And James says, it's at hand, it's close. Verse nine, I told you James was redundant. Do not grumble so that you may not be judged. Behold, look, see, consider. The judge is standing at the door. Again, he's at the threshold. He's standing, so he's not crossing, but he's standing. He's there. He could enter at any time. And this is very sobering. But but more specifically, James reminds us that part of the work Jesus will do when he returns is the work of judgment. James says that when Jesus comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Believers from unbelievers. His judgment will be based on a person's faith or lack of faith. His judgment will be based upon a person's belief in the gospel or a lack of belief in the gospel. His judgment will be based on the resultant fruit or the lack of fruit in someone's life based on their faith. We're gonna study the faith works, faith fruit thread significantly. That's a major thread. We're gonna pick up on it. But for now, just consider what James says. He says that when the judge returns, if the fruit of our lives is generally characterized by impatience and grumbling, if we have an unforgiving heart, a merciless spirit, an absence of grace towards others, if Jesus comes back and doesn't see the gospel in increasing measure going through us to other people, he'll know that we as people have never actually received the gospel and we will be judged and condemned. But conversely, when the judge returns, if our lives are increasingly characterized by patience, steadfastness, forgiveness, mercy, and grace to others, then we won't be judged. We won't be condemned. It's what James says in the passage. So here's the million dollar question tonight Where do we get the power for patience? How do we become increasingly merciful? Increasingly kind, increasingly forgiving, increasingly long-suffering. I've said it, but I'll say it again. James is telling us in his redundancy that in order to be patient, we have to keep our minds and our eyes on Jesus and his return for us. We have to focus on him. We have to see him again. We have to hear him again. We have to be reminded again of his patience. It says at the very end of the text, he is compassionate and merciful. We have to again and again run back to how long suffering he has been with us. In order for our patience to not be taxed by the sins of others against us, we have to constantly go back to how taxing we have been to God and how he has not crushed us. In order for us to forgive others for their offenses against us. And to the extent that we receive Jesus' forgiveness for us in the gospel. It is to the same extent that we will be able to forgive others. Regardless of how massive or how repeated the offenses against us are. We will only die for others if we see his death for us in our sin. We will only die to ourselves and live for others to the extent that we see him doing the same for us. There is a tension in this text, and I intend to land on both sides of it because I would be unfaithful to James if I did not. I actually think that James has in his mind and in his heart a particular teaching of Jesus when he writes this text. I think that James has a particular parable of Jesus in mind when he writes this text. There's too many vocab words, there's too many themes, there's too many ideas that run between Matthew 18 and James 5 for it to not be true. In Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him how often he has to forgive a brother who sins against him. And Jesus' answer, there's no limit. There's no cap. There's no number you hit and you can stop forgiving. And then Jesus goes right into this parable about the kingdom of heaven. He says that a king wished to settle accounts. He called in a particular servant who owed him 10,000 talents. It's a ginormous amount of money. And this is symbolizing our debt to God. This is symbolizing a debt that we cannot possibly pay. And it says that the servant could not pay. And that the king said for him to be sold with his family so that the king could get some sort of restoration in the deal. And the servant fell on his knees and he begged for mercy. Same word as verse 11. He said to the king, have patience. Be long-suffering with me and I will pay you everything. And it says that the king had compassion for him. Verse 11 of James. And he released him. And he forgave that massive debt. But then the servant, forgiven the 10,000 talents, went out and he began to look for those who owed him money, those who had a debt with him. And he found a servant that owed him 100 denarii, nothing compared to 10,000 talents, but, but a third of a year's salary. And shockingly, Shockingly, considering what he just experienced from the king, the servant seized his servant. He choked his servant and he said, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and he began to beg. And this should sound incredibly familiar. He says, Have patience, be long suffering with me. I'll pay you everything in time. And again, Shockingly, considering how much mercy he was given, the servant refused to be patient. He refused to be long-suffering. He refused to forgive, and he had the man thrown in jail. When the king heard of it, he was shocked and he was angry. And he gave the man over to the jailers to be tortured. He judged him. And this is what he said to him, all that debt I forgave you because you begged me, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? And the parable teaches us first that the recipients of God's mercy, forgiveness, grace, And love that as we have received those things, it is shocking for us to not give them away when so much has been given to us. But second, the parable teaches us how to forgive, it teaches us how to be patient, it teaches us how to love. It is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is coming back to make everything He's given us complete. All that debt I forgave you, should you not have mercy on others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your scripture tells us that in uh, the pulpit today in Orlando, there were men who preached who do not know you. Your scriptures teach us that in this room today, there are those who do ministry, but actually have no idea who you are. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be faithful to James in the handling of this text, completely and utterly believing your gospel, but being willing to look at our lives and ask the question, is the gospel coursing through me to others? Jesus, I pray that right now, if we find ourselves forced to say no, that the gospel is not coursing through me to others, I pray now that you would give us the gift of repentance. I ask that right now we would, we would call out loud for the reality of what is in our hearts and we would beg you for forgiveness. That we would today for the first time understand all the debt that you have forgiven us in the gospel. We would move forth from here empowered by that reality to forgive others and be patient with others, to be long-suffering with others. Jesus, as we study this book of your younger brother, James, I pray that we would be willing to be uncomfortable with the hard things that he says, that we would be willing to come to you in humility and repentance and ask you to deal graciously with us yet again. I pray for this in the name of Jesus.